welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by Dr. Mark Pizzacella, who is a senior partner with BDO's Melbourne office. Mark is a public speaker, thought leader in the SME sector, company director, and a business and taxation advisor. Mark completed his PhD in relation to the taxation of SMEs in Australia and is a regular speaker on business and taxation issues. He is a prolific writer, having contributed significant commentary through numerous articles, publications and conference papers. He has appeared on ABC's Late Line Business and is one of the few tax practitioners who has had their work cited in Australia's federal parliament. Mark is a member of the Tax Institute's Victorian Technical Committee, a former chair of the Tax Institute's National SME Subcommittee and a former Victorian State Councillor of the Tax Institute. Mark has been a member of the Board of Taxation since January 2015 and was reappointed for a further three-year term commencing 1 January 2018. The Board's role is to provide real-time policy advice to the Federal Government, and Mark is currently leading a review of Australia's small business tax concessions, their effectiveness, and alternative concessionary approaches for the SME sector. Mark, welcome to Taxiac. Thank you very much for having me. Great to have you here. Um, this is a review that we have been following closely, mm -hmm. and I think it's important for all our listeners to understand that as of today when I'm speaking with you, the report has been completed and provided to the government. That's correct. But it has not been publicly released. Correct. So therefore you are limited in what you can say about the findings in the report and the recommendations. That's correct. Okay. But we can have a chat about the issues that have come up and, and why the review was undertaken and maybe what we can expect out of um, uh, the final report. Sure. So what I want to start with, the Board of Taxation. It's often thrown about. I think most people are aware that it exists. I like to think all the practitioners do. But what's its purpose? Why was it set up and what is its current role? Yeah, look, that's a good question, Robin. So, so the Board of Tax was recommended as a result of the Ralph Review of Business Taxation. Um, that particular review identified a number of key shortcomings in the processes for developing tax policy, drafting legislation or tax legislation in particular, and, and the way in which the law was administered. As a result of that, the government established the board in 2000 to advise the Treasurer of the development and implementation of tax legislation as well as the ongoing operation of the, of the tax system. So, in essence, Robin, the Board of Tax uh, is actually a, a conduit, if you like, between the business and taxpaying community and government. Um, one of the key shortcomings, I should say, that was identified was that... Um, um, the perception that, that potentially government was not always listening to uh, what taxpayers had to say or what business had to say. Well, historically, the government got its information from Treasury. That is correct, Which yeah. is, of course, part of the government. So this is more an independent body. It is more of an independent body. And I guess, um, uh, and, you know, as part of the process, the Board of Tax liaises really with the ATO and with Treasury. Um, and and it must know, be said the profession. And well, obviously, yes, def definitely the pro profession, mm -hmm. all of the professional associations, and, and so forth. So, and the way it's currently operating um, is is such that it's real time policy. So perhaps when the board was initially set up, there was a, a lot of deep dives into specific tax areas, and what we found over the last few years is that we've changed the model a bit, and um, still doing 
technical reports, of course, but but more so trying to contribute to tax policy um, as it's happening. Okay, so before bills are being introduced into Parliament before, or as they're sitting before Parliament. That's right. Okay. Yep. Mark, could you comment on the composition of the board, um, basically the makeup and, and the types of people that are on it? Sure. So, so the board of tax um, com- comprises a, n- a number of members from different parts of the community. So we have members on the board that are from uh, the tax community. We have members of the board that are from the corporate world. Um, there are also a number of ex officio members, including the Commissioner of Taxation, of course, and the, office, and the Office of Parliamentary Council. And he, of course, was a former uh, chairman of the board. Uh, was chairman of the board or chair of the board? Yes, he was. He was certainly the chair of the board at one stage and has been, and was a member of the board for a number of years previous to that. Okay. Um, who it should be added was a member of the board and then went on to be its chair before he um, left officially that chairing role. To, to become take... commissioner. Yes. That is, that is correct. Yep. Um, and so I guess the the rationale behind that is that is that we try and, or that members of the board uh, are sourced from a diverse range of sectors um, and at the at the moment like those sectors would include mining technology um, tax advisory uh, legal um, just to just to name a few okay yeah the board meets monthly uh, with meetings rotating across the different capital cities a number of meetings in, in Sydney and Melbourne of course Perth Adelaide um, and hopefully I haven't, I haven't Canberra and hopefully I haven't missed any others and uh, the whole point of that is to is to really when we visit the different states um, it's also to meet uh, people from business community uh, taxpaying community in those states so we we do make an effort to either um, have a lunch uh, with various members of the taxpaying community uh, or have sessions different sessions with uh, with um, the various uh, associations in those different states, just so that we get across uh, the coalface in terms of what's really happening. And remain in touch. Uh, and absolutely remain in touch. So quite apart from what we do in our respective occupations outside of the Board of Tax, it's really important for us to, to be out there and listen to what people have to say. I also think it's worth mentioning the Board of Taxation has what's called a sounding board. Yep. And many practitioners may not be aware of this. So it's readily available on your website. And you can basically register, so you just basically put in an email address, and then it allows you as a practitioner to put in technical suggestions and ideas or things that you think the board needs to look at. And I understand the board looks at everything that appears on the sounding board, and then you work through it and determine whether or not it's significant enough to put back to the government. Yeah. So look, as unbelievable as that does sound, it is true that uh, all of the items that appear on the sounding board make their way into the board papers and all of the board members would read what those suggestions are um, and we allocate a couple of board members to look at those suggestions in a bit more detail and at the board meeting to discuss what they believe is doable and, and maybe not doable amongst the suggestions. It's important to say too that the suggestions that are made on the sounding board um, are really care and maintenance type things. So uh, so there's no point someone putting on the sounding board, I think, um, you know, GST should go to 15% mm-hmm. and maybe on, and maybe we should reduce marginal tax rates. They're, I mean, they're high-level policy... Major policy pol- changes. Major policy changes that require more consideration than maybe uh, um, a suggestion on the sounding board. But, but certainly, uh, so for example, we have had a number of people put terrific suggestions on the sounding board uh, to do with um, the way in which the law operates or doesn't operate. Um, well, I can think in, of one yeah. example at the moment. I know there is a proposed amendment. With the small business restructure rollover, the eligibility, of course, is 10 million turnover. Yeah. 
But there's been a reference to, to the CGTSBE or the tool, the five million. So that's obviously mm. unintended. That was unintended, and that was raised as part of the sanding board, and and that's right. That is being processed, uh, as I understand it, yeah. or being closely looked at as part of that uh, uh, process at the moment. Which so, is good yeah. to see. Yeah, it is. It is good to see. So moving on to uh, this particular review, um, when was this first commissioned, and, and why was this commissioned? I think it's notable. Uh, this is actually what we call a self-initiated review. So maybe commissioned isn't the right word to use here. This is something where the board actually felt this needed to be looked at because often your reviews, uh, the government will commission the board to look at a particular aspect of the law. But in this case, the board thought, no, we need to look at this ourselves. So maybe a bit of background would be useful here. So so, uh, so the board's been involved, uh, well, since I've been on the board at least, it's been involved in a number of SME uh, initiatives and, and interactions with government, uh, which have included the Small Business Company Tax Rate Reduction, um, the unincorporated small business discount, increasing small business eligibility threshold to 10 mil at that time, uh, the instant asset write-off, um, the small business restructure rollover relief, and early stage investors. So we, in one way or another, we've had touch points in those areas. That Now, I'm not suggesting for one minute that, that, that we've had a deep dive into all of those areas, but, but we did feel that we'd contributed significantly to the debate, the discussion, and I guess when we were looking at, well, what else should be done in the SME sector, uh, one thing that came to mind to me was that we hadn't really, no one had really uh, done a helicopter review, if you like, of the small business concessions. In other words, if we look at the small business concessions, is it working the way it was always intended? Are all of the concessions relevant? Should some be deleted? Should some be modified? So amazingly um, enough, no one had ever looked at this. From that not from that perspective, perspective, not from that perspective. So we thought a review was appropriate in that context, um, and that's what we did. I think so. Our listeners are clear. We're not talking necessarily the small business CGT concessions in Division One Five Two. That is part of it. That is part but, of it. But you're talking more broadly about the small business concessions, well, which are a, a range of concessions available. Correct. We're talking about the small business concessions, and and. You're quite right. Um, some people initially did misinterpret what we were doing as being the small business CGT concessions, and that is only one element. But but having said that, um, it I've got to say it did get a lot of airplay, of course, <laughs> because it is such a you know such an important area. And we'll give it some airplay today as yeah, well. Yeah. So a question: Do all small business concessions work? Well, in my opinion, not all concessions have worked in the past. Historically, have you got some examples where yeah. things haven't worked? So historically, I think it's fair to say that the you know um, simplified tax system didn't work in the end. Um, that's not to say that it didn't it wasn't well intended or well meant uh, in terms in terms of what it was supposed to do. Um, to provide some dates for those who uh, may have joined the profession since it yeah. was actually repealed. This was introduced one July two thousand and one. Correct. It came out of the Ralph Business Tax Review. Okay. And was a recommendation that where they introduce a simplified tax system for smaller businesses, and it was repealed uh, with effect uh, one July two thousand and seven, and that's when the current small business entity rules took over. And for anyone who's vaguely familiar with where the rules are, Division three twenty eight is of course the home of the small business entity definitions. Yes, and that is of course where STS used to sit. So they've used the same spot in the tax law. Um, look, I have. Often, I don't know if joked is the right word here, but very much tongue-in-cheek, that these are not simplified tax system rules. They're just very complex rules for simple businesses. Well, I think uh, being an accountant, we do look at numbers. And um, so the academic research that was done on the STS, if I can call it that, the, sm the, the, the small business um, uh, 
the simplified tax system, I the should say. Rules. The old rules, as they were called. The take-up was low. I think it was uh, around 14% initially. Goodness. And um, I only think it got as high as about 27% in later years. Of eligible so entities. Of, of entities that took up those concessions. Mm. So... The numbers tell the story. For a variety of reasons, they weren't working. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of literature uh, in the tech space that discusses all these things. But I think ultimately, the lesson is that if you're going to introduce a regime, you do need to try and make it simple and understandable. The more complex it is, the less likely people are going to get involved. And so. I think that's still a lesson for today. Agreed. Mm. Can you give me another example of something that uh, maybe has not worked and has been repealed? So another example in my mind would be the Entrepreneur's Tax Offset. Uh, So for those of your listeners that are not aware, the Entrepreneur's Tax Offset came in uh, in 2004, um, or I think it was announced in 2004, and, and the whole purpose of the entrepreneurs tax offset was really to help very small micro enterprises that were home based by you know providing them with a, a reduction in tax payable uh, up to a certain level of taxable income but as I keep saying to people I've never heard or I've never had a taxpayer say I really want to become an entrepreneur because I've heard you can get the entrepreneurs tax offset it doesn't drive behaviour, does it? Doesn't it doesn't drive behaviour. And so so I've never been a big fan... I was never a big fan of the Entrepreneur's Tax Offset for a long time. Uh, then I think Ken Henry actually included it in his report in 2010 and, and basically indicated that it should be repealed, is my recollection of it. Uh, and then it finally was four years later, I think, in 2014. So the other lesson, uh, Robin, is that when you introduce a concession, whether it's good, bad or indifferent, it's really hard to get rid of. Because once it's there, once it's taxpayers there, don't like things being taken off them. Taxpayers don't like things being taken off them unless you can uh, maybe uh, um, substitute it with something else or, or show a connection between something that's being taken away and something else that they're getting. And that's just uh, that's just an unfortunate fact of life. Yeah. Now, you've also flagged with me the trading stock concession. This is not particularly widely used, is it? Well, the trading stock concession is an interesting one. Um, so for those of your listeners that are not aware, the trading stock concession basically means that as a taxpayer, you're not required to undertake a stock take if the difference between the opening stock value and the closing stock value is less than, I think, $5,000. Um, you know, I always say to people, how do you know that unless you do a stock take? Exactly right. <laughs> um, so, so, and also I think you'll find the HA guidelines about, about how they should be administered are quite significant. Um, well, I walk into my business and I look at the stock on the shelf and I think, oh, it hasn't moved much. Let's about a centimetre higher. That can't be more than $5,000. Yeah. So, so again, I think it's one of those concessions that was well meant. And, whether you know, we got a, a bit of uh, traction in terms of when we went around doing um, consultation on the Small Business Review. Um I've got mixed reaction, to be honest. Like some, some people thought it was a great idea, whilst others others thought it was a waste of time. So, you know. I've got to say, in my travels, it's not been one of the widely used concessions that I have seen. Mm. Um, certainly things like the simplified depreciation rules, yes, pooling and, and mm. the write-off, and we'll talk more about that later. Yeah. Um, but the trading stock, I feel like it's a, a, an underutilised concession. I think so. Mm. Mm. With the development of policy, obviously the government will have its own processes and and factors that it takes into account in designing tax policy. But is there really an objective that the board was trying to achieve as well? Is there was some guidance that you were trying to provide back to the government? Yeah, so Robin, I've been emphasising for some time that um, 
It's really important to have some guiding principles when introducing new tax laws. Those principles will be different depending on you know, which taxpayer sector you're looking or which industry sector or taxpayer sector you're looking at. And most boards across Australia will have decision-making frameworks in, in terms of helping them arrive at decisions they make for the businesses that they run. So this, I see this as being no different. It's a, it's a real commercial way of approaching a problem. And so, you know, before we talked about some um, SME concessions that arguably didn't work as well as they could have, and I say arguably because everyone's got a different opinion, but we talked about the entrepreneur's tax offset. So, so would the entrepreneur's tax offset um, have come in had you had different principles in place? Who knows, right? So it's a long time ago. But the, the principles that we came up with, if I can just go through them, were quite specific to the SME sector. So they included designing uh, tax laws for the SME sector having regard to the small business life cycle, and I'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. Does what you're going to introduce assist a small business with cash flow? Does it ameliorate the compliance burden for small business? Uh, does it promote growth and innovation? Is the policy that you're introducing targeted and affordable? And, and I'll come back, to, and by targeted, I mean, does it reach the intended recipients um, that you're trying to aim the policy at and and last but definitely not least does it you need to make sure it doesn't incentivize complex structuring so there's no point i think trying to introduce new rules which simply incentivize taxpayers to change their structures or further complicate the structures they're in to try and take advantage of a particular concession or, or circumvent a particular tax outcome that they may not want or circumvent an outcome they don't want as well that, that's that's a very good point as well so can you talk about the life cycle? A typical small business would look like what? Well, that's a really interesting question because then we're, we're entering the territory of what is a small business. And, and what does it look like? And, and they all look differ. Like and, and they're all different. And, um, and depending on who you talk to, you know, people will talk about revenue, they'll talk about profit, they'll talk about number of employees. Um, so we've, we've probably jumped ahead a little. But um, the small business life cycle itself m focuses more on the journey of a small business from inception to maturity and, and potentially decline rather than what is a small business. Um, so when I talk about a small business life cycle, what I'm talking about is when you're introducing a policy, what juncture of that small business life cycle are you trying to make an impact on? So I'll give you an example. So if you're looking at a startup, there's not much point, I would think, in introducing accelerated depreciation deductions. They don't need the deductions at that point. They've got, they don't have income at that point. <laughs> so, they've probably got losses. So yes, they probably do need to invest in, in fixed assets and, and sure, they'd love a deduction, but it's not going to help them that much. It's just going to increase their losses, uh, which are of no use to them. So they'd be more looking at subsidies or cash subsidies of some description. Well, we've got or... measures that allow you certain deductions when you establish an entity, and that's now been extended to those who pay for the establishment of an entity as well, as opposed to the entity itself. That's right, yeah. So, so they're the sorts of things you look at. Um, now, there are a number of small business life cycles that you can focus on. Um, so the one that I focused on was one called the Scott Bruce model, which was out of Cape Town University. And but there's a lot of different models, and you know you can have just a debate on which model should you be looking at. Which I think you can go too far. But certainly, when I looked at all these models, I looked at in excess of a dozen of them, and I landed on this particular model because it actually looked at not only the small business life cycle journey, but also crisis points, and it and it identified crisis points in the journey of a life cycle of a business and. What do you do? What do you do when you reach those crisis points? So I think we discussed that inception. Cash is the 
a predominant issue. And fair to say the cash is probably a predominant issue at all stages of a small business life cycle. <laughs> Not just the start, although the start is, is particularly important. But you could have um, a business that starts up, becomes very successful on paper, profitable, but it could have a whole lot of value caught up in debtors. Absolutely. And which means it's got a cash flow problem even though it's profitable. Absolutely. And a lot of businesses struggle with that concept and they can lead to some unfortunate outcomes later where the cash isn't being collected. Well, that's right. So you can have uh, high revenues, uh, or sorry, accelerated revenues being generated, but yeah, is the cash coming in? So or you could equally have high revenues but high costs and therefore you've got very low margins. Correct. Yeah, which I think petrol stations are typical of that. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And then maturity, I was also thinking about, you know, this includes exit strategies. So concessions, yep. and I'm thinking particularly small business CGT concessions, that's not so much about your growth and, and expansion and you know, taking over the world. This is now about getting out, retiring, shutting down, selling, etc. Yeah, absolutely. So and small small business uh, CGT concessions are key at that, at that latter end of the life cycle, for mm. sure. I want to move on to something called what the government calls the tax expenditures statement. And it's something that I know that a lot of practitioners would necessarily focus on each year when this is released. But to explain what it does, it sets out by the type of expenditure what costs the government the most in foregone revenue. So the uh, one topping the list, and this has been here for I don't know how many years, is the main residence exemption. So this is the CGT that the government is missing out on by providing the MRE to, to homeowners. And it's in excess of $74 billion. It's a massive amount each year. Uh, going through the top three or four here, we've got concessional treatment of the earnings in a superannuation fund, of course, that 15% rate instead of higher marginal rates. Um, that sits in there at about $20 billion. The concessional treatment of employer super contributions, a further $17 billion. And the CGT discount for individuals and trusts is around $10 billion. Now, we then move into the small business concession and what this is costing the government. Top of this list is the lower company tax rate. And we'll speak more about this as we go on, but that is currently costing the government $1.3 billion. The simplified depreciation rules, $1.2 billion. The 50% reduction, so this is the, not the discount, but the 50% reduction in the small business CGT concessions, $840 million. The R&D non-refundable tax offset, so to be clear, I'm talking about the turnovers under $20 million a year, and that's $780 million. And then we've got the small business tax discount. This is the one that's limited to $1,000, and that's costing the government $750 million a year. Um, for completeness, I wanted to also throw in the retirement exemption at $550 million, the 15-year exemption at $320 million, and the small business replacement asset rollover, $320 million. So that's telling me, Mark, that firstly, the company tax rate is costing the government more than any other small business concession. And the small business 50% reduction at $840 million is more than each of the three other concessions. So that tells me that it's being used more, or it's certainly costing the government more, to provide that particular concession. And that makes sense, because it's the easiest one to qualify for. That's exactly right, yeah. So observations about those <coughs> expenditures. Um, is this sitting mm. the way you would expect? Um, does this tell the government anything about why they should be targeting the concessions? Look, I think it's it does provide interesting insights just in terms of where the money is being sent. And I think it, it's just prudent to review from time to time the concessions. And obviously annually would be a good time to do it when the, when the numbers come out. Now, the numbers are not 
foolproof is my understanding because there's you know there's a bit of uh, ed educated guesswork involved in terms of the way these numbers come about is my understanding so but it does provide government with a you know indication as to what each of the concessions cost and I guess the small business CGT concessions when you look at it I mean you know they they're basically half of all the SME concessions, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, we had those up. So, so it just tells you that, okay, you know, right off the bat, that small business CGT concessions are, are the most used and really important concessions to, to um, review and therefore are they producing the results that they should be producing or not? So, so it, is a, it is an area that, that it, well, it just basically means that one should review those in detail. And look, we can look at that in more detail yep. as we move through some of these topics. So with your consultation, certainly throughout the process of this review, there were discussions held with stakeholders, and I'm referring to the professional associations, the accounting firms, the profession, the small business commissioners from the states. Uh, you've certainly spoken with the small business and family enterprise ombudsman. You spoke directly with small business owners. So there are quite a range of stakeholders involved in this. Yeah, absolutely a range of stakeholders. And it's really interesting when you, when you do that because... Um, everyone's got their different perspective of the concessions and what's assisting them and what isn't. And one of the interesting small business owners that I came across in Adelaide actually indicated to me that they were reluctant to grow their business if it meant that they were going to pay payroll tax. Um, you know, if, if, if their salary bill got to such a point that they were going to pay mm -hmm. payroll tax, they just weren't interested in growing their business above that, even though they thought they could do that quite easily. Which is a concern, isn't it? And, and so that's a concern. And it's also, to me, counterintuitive because from my perspective, I look at that and think, well, if you know you can grow your business and and be more successful, why, why would you not want to do that? But it's interesting the way some business owners' uh, minds work, you know, in terms of... Uh, I'll give you a you further know, example of that. I often hear, well, I don't want my business to be worth more than $6 million because then I won't be qualified for the small business CGT yeah, concessions. Well, that is another one. Yeah, I'd rather mm. sell it for five and a half and get the concessions mm. than sell it for seven and not get the concessions. And tax shouldn't be driving these commercial decisions, but I think the reality is it sometimes does. Yes, well, you know, they probably see their accountants who reminds them that, hey, you know, if you grow your business above this certain level, you won't get this concession, and let's do some maths around that. Mm. Um, and so if the maths don't quite work out, um, that can be the result that you get. And that can then start driving the market prices. Yeah. Well, that's why you've seen some case. You know, there've been a number of cases around that very topic. So of course, yeah. So, what's some of the feedback? And I want to start with the issue of what is a small business. It has come up for years and years. We have so many different definitions of what is a small business. And you touched on this earlier. Are we talking turnover? Are we talking profitability? Are we talking number of employees? Are we talking? against some other benchmark, but even within the Tax Act itself, and I'm going to ignore for the moment the ASIC definitions and, and other ones that we use for fair work and so on. Even within the Tax Act, we've got a $2 million threshold, a $5 million, a $10 million, $20 million, $50 million, and these all serve different purposes. So what is a small business? There's definitely too many definitions of, of small business, so we we got that very clear message from people that we spoke to. Um, but it wasn't just about tax; it was about all areas of regulation, where whether it's payroll tax, uh, whether it's stamp duty, whether it's whatever the, whatever the item happens to be. The common complaint was: look, it's hard for me to understand 
where these thresholds are because the definitions keep keep changing. So I'm not quite sure what the you know panacea is to that because one needs to remember that the reason there are these different definitions is because they were brought in for specific purposes to cater for particular scenarios and um, and so therefore it is quite difficult to have a one-size-fits-all definition. Look, I'll give you one example of a bugbear that I have and consider this a submission to the Board of Taxation yep. if you like. <laughs> okay. We had a $2 million turnover threshold for SBE purposes and that was universal for those concessions and we understood what it was. Yep. And then 1 July 2016 it was increased up to 10 mil. Policy decision taken by the government to leave the $2 million threshold in place for Div 152 purposes. I accept that. But we've ended up with three thresholds, being the 5 mil in the middle. Now, that is for just one concession, the small business income tax offset, that is capped at $1,000 anyway. So couldn't they have just left it at 2 million turnover or put it up to 10 million, but to have a separate and third threshold for one measure that is capped at $1,000 just seems to me... Um, not achieving a great deal. And mm. that's something that I would like to see removed. And whether you put it up to 10 or put it back to 2, whatever, I'm not, I'm not fussed. I'll take that on board. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what about complexity? With all these different definitions, and sometimes there are different eligibility rules depending which one you're looking at, um, we've got things like the connected entities and the affiliates that get built into these particular provisions. Mm. So you can't just look at an entity standalone and say, yes, I'm sitting here under $2 million or under $10 million. I've got to factor in all these other things. But there are these tweaks and adjustments, and I sometimes include that, and I sometimes exclude that, and I've got to know when to build something in. And more complexity means more chances to get it wrong. It adds to the compliance costs. And I often think with things like small business CGT, where... We're trying to provide concessional relief to a small business because it probably hasn't put away much for its retirement during the working life. The idea is they live off the, the sale proceeds from the sale of the business. But to work out if you're eligible for these concessions can be sometimes cost prohibitive. So one issue with the small business CGT concessions is that it is costly to obtain advice. Um, Typical the ver- quote that you would see? You know, for the very reasons that, that you've mentioned. Um, so... There's always a balancing act between providing uh, an SME concession and putting in place some integrity rules so that the concession isn't abused. And trying to get that balance right is difficult. Trying to get the balance right is difficult, and particularly in the small business environment where people are operating businesses out of a myriad of different structures. Um, And so if you didn't have those rules in place that you're referring to in terms of eligibility criteria, Mm -hmm. then you could be giving that concession, which is a significant concession, as we've just seen from the numbers, to to those that wouldn't necessarily be entitled. And an example is the amendments from 2018, February 2018, where Division 152 has been amended, but all sitting within one provision. So it's in 152.10. It is. And yep. we've got extra conditions now that apply when you sell shares or units. Correct. And yep. working through that, we ran this as a special topic a month or so ago, and running through this on the board and explaining all the different steps that people have to go through. Now, I'm now hearing quotes of $10,000 to work out if you're eligible. And there are issues with fees. Do you go through the whole process? And I can do in seconds and minutes in a training session what takes you hours, days mm. or weeks in the real world. Mm. And you can then emerge after two or three weeks of sitting at your desk, pouring through all these numbers and say, well, yes, we've worked out you're not eligible, but here's our fee for $10,000. Yes. <laughs> um, look, that is an issue. Um, yeah, look, I accept, I accept that y- you may actually get that as an outcome. 
but I think that's probably going to arise more so when a taxpayer has a number of different entities in their structure. Agreed. If it's just a, you know, if it's just a... a Straight a sol- shareholding. A sole shareholder of a company or, or a family running a business out of a trust, much easier to, to work that out. But quite often you will get um, taxpayers that are running a, a diverse number of businesses across a diverse range of entities and that is and that is where it gets difficult. And of course when you start putting land in one entity and your business in another one and you try to look at the relationships between those entities. That's right and, and the reason there is because there are commercial reasons for, for doing that. It's got nothing to do with tax but as you try and work out the tax outcomes it does make it difficult. The thresholds become very crucial because it's not like if you're just a little bit over, you get a little bit of a concession. Um, this is bright line. Once you're over your 10 mil turnover or your 6 mil of assets or whatever it is you're measuring, um, you're out. Yes. So it becomes this... Um, it becomes critical. It does become critical. Yeah, yeah, it does. Can we talk about simplified depreciation? Firstly, the instant asset write-off. Um, this has changed a number of times over the years. Some will remember when it was... A $5,000 threshold, and it went to $6,500, went back to $1,000. Um, there were special provisions for cars. We've had investment allowances over the years, which gave you bonus deductions. Um, and now in particular, we've got, of course, the $20,000 asset write-off, and that was introduced back in 2015. Then it became $25,000, and now it's become $30,000, and that runs through till June 30 next year. Um, again, if I can throw in a bugbear here, Mark... The government announced 29 January that it would lift from 20 to 25,000, and then just over two months later announced that it would go to 30,000. And if we talk about simplification, it would have been great if, when they announced the 30,000, they could wear the two months and take it back to January. But instead, it took effect from when it was announced, which is often the case with announcements and when they take effect. But the reality is, we've ended up with three different thresholds in the one income year because of the development of that policy during 1819. And I would really love to see some permanency regarding this policy. It's popular, we know it's supported, we know business responds to it. Um, I've heard different comments about this. One is that if you don't announce it every year, you can't basically provide a wonderful new idea to the business community, so we need to dress it up and put the the lights and bells and whistles on it. Um, And if it's just sitting there on the back of the legislation, then is it going to be utilised to the extent it is currently? But by the same token, every time it changes year after year, there is a brand new bill with consultation that has to go through Parliament. And it was in 2018-19 that we were three months into the year and we didn't get royal assent on the enacting bill until late September. So there was a period of three months where we didn't know what the threshold was. So what I'm saying is it seems to be a well-received concession wouldn't it be great to see it permanently built into the law instead of annual announcements that drip feed it out to the SME community? So there's uh, there's a lot in there to unpack, Robin. Yes, there um, is. <laughs> so I think I think look a couple of things. One, one it's not not for me to say how the, how the government has introduced those provisions because you know that they would have their reasons. But it is certainly the most widely known concession. And I think it's understood by business, isn't it? And it's clearly understood. And uh, that was very clear to us as we've been around the country talking to people about concessions. If it was one concession everybody was aware of, it was this one. And if you think about it, it is, you know, when we talked before about the guiding principles, um, it's simple to understand, it's cash flow positive, 
Yes, it relates to depreciable assets. I know what they are. Um, so and it's just a timing difference. We're not talking about permanent giveaways here. It no. would have been depreciable over time anyway. anyway it's just accelerating it's the timing. It, it's bringing it forward. That's mm. right. So, and you know, the issue is about permanency. Um, and that's clearly a matter for the government, not the board. It's I understand that. It's clearly a matter for the government. Uh, but, you know, there, there are, you know, even during consultation process, there were different views on that as well. Some people did want a permanent. Other, other taxpayers said, oh, no, it's a good idea to leave it the way it is because it means that, it will force taxpayers to make that decision, you know, to, mm. to actually invest in the economy when they may not have otherwise invested if it was permanent. Now, I think we're getting into an economics debate here, which I'm not qualified to yes. <laughs> to, 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 to get to a conclusion on, but um, certainly the small business community wants to keep it. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's an important concession. I think it's also notable that, of course, for the first time, it was basically extended to larger businesses. So the 10 to 50 millions yeah. for mm. a year or just over a year are mm. able to access that 30,000 write-off as well. Mm. And it will be interesting to see whether that is extended or remains in place or whether that literally is a, a 14, 15-month period. Mm. The pooling rules for simplified depreciation, what was the feedback you got on that? So with the pooling rules, uh, yeah, again, we had some mixed f- feedback. So some taxpayers were, were, were very much on side with the pooling rules, whilst um, others just preferred more to have the instant asset write-off and not to have a, a pooling system at all. Um, so, again, there was a multiple of views um, in relation to this one, particularly you know, one of the issues that, that came out from... Uh, the community was that in order to access the instant asset write-off, you also had to elect to be in a pool. Uh, mm-hmm. And some taxpayers didn't necessarily want that. They wanted to have their instant asset write-off, but it didn't mean that they had to have a pool because of the certain assets that they were able to depreciate was at a much higher rate. So that that you know we teased mm-hmm. that concept out a little bit uh, during the course of the consultation process. Mark, I want to go further. I want to suggest that a lot of taxpayers don't understand that if you want the write-off, you have to pull any assets above the That's, threshold. Yes. They seem to think they can just take the write-off but do what they like with the rest of the assets. In mm. other words, just depreciate them according mm. to normal rules. Mm. So, look, I, I get mixed responses. I think for some, the pooling works and, and is understood. I think with the pooling, um, some people just don't understand the, what happens when you sell an asset and whether that actually has the effect of reducing pool balance. And if you scrap an asset, for example, you're not going to be reducing the balance by anything. Yes, that's true. Mm. Yeah. Um, with the instant asset write-off, when people sell an asset, they need to be assessed on the sale proceeds, and I don't think that's always understood by businesses. No. They like grabbing the deduction, but not so yep. keen on paying yep. back the income. That's true. What about the small business restructure rollover? What was your feedback when you discussed this one with the stakeholders? Um, so, Robin, most businesses I spoke to in relation to the small business restructure rollover provisions um, were, were happy that they were introduced. They welcomed it as part of the suite of small business concessions. However, they did consider the rules to be um, complex. Which um, particular aspects are suggesting maybe the genuine restructure well, the requirement? the genuine restructure requirement and was the, one. And the underlying economic ownership interest. Would they be the two that seem to be causing mm, concern? They were two that came out, yeah. yes. Yep. Yep. In particular, Robin, one of the things that they... That they mentioned uh, was the technical limitations around if you're a, a sole trader of a business and you transfer your business um, into a typical trust structure that owns a company, 
that the provisions didn't allow you to, to do that because of a technicality in the law. So we obviously considered that as part of our review. Mm. And look, I've got to say too, most of the questions I've filled in on this over the past couple of years have related to where there's a discretionary trust involved, where somehow or another it wasn't working because of those technical restrictions. Yeah. Um, I think also it's something, I consider it to be another tool in the toolbox for practitioners and their clients. But the feedback I've gotten is often it's just simpler to go with the other concessions, e.g. small business CGT concessions, than meet all the requirements in this, as much as there are conditions, of course, in Defund 5.2. Mm. So I agree. I think it has been used, but whether it actually achieves what it was supposed to, it'd be interesting yep. to see what the, um, the final findings are in the report. Uh, PAYG. Now, I'm going to break this into two parts. PAYG instalments. We all know the stories where a business starts up, doesn't start paying instalments until year two, by which time the instalments have been triggered for year two, so you're then paying effectively the double whammy in that second year. And that's something a lot of businesses often aren't prepared for. Hopefully their advisors bring it to their attention, but I know that comes up as a repeated issue. It does come up as a repeated issue, and I think, uh, you know, as you start a small business, I think it's just critical to have a, a cash flow forecast, which, which, which a lot of businesses don't have for some reason. and. Um, to take into account when those tax payments are going to occur, to not forget that they are going to happen. And so it's just the way the tax system works that, that you know, at a particular juncture, you need to pay your tax for the previous income year and then try and meet the PAYG instalments going forward and it all happens at roughly the same time. And once so, you're up and running, you're fine, but it's that second year that it That's right, it hits. that's right. Mm. But that's still at the inception period. So when you're when you're still trying to get your business off the ground and you might have spent your money because you needed to. So And yet if we went the other way and said to small businesses, look, when you start up you've got to start paying tax quarterly from your first year, mm. they may not have the cash flow to do it. Correct. So Correct. difficult. Yeah. Um, withholding. Now this is an observation I've had for a long time as well. It was interesting to look at this in some of the feedback that of course the medium and that is a monthly withholder kicks in above twenty five thousand. Mm -hmm. And that's not particularly large. You're talking about $100,000 of income. So as soon as your payroll hits around $100,000, you're moving to monthly payments instead of quarterly. And again, it's a policy decision, but understanding who's a small, who's a medium and who's a large, which is above your million dollars a year of withholding, I wonder if those thresholds are still appropriate. And again, something for the government to yeah, consider. No, no, it's a good question. And it's not just about this particular matter, but there's thresholds uh, littered throughout the Tax Act, as you know, which impact small businesses. And so, yep, they, they do need to be reviewed regularly. But Mark, I, to share with you, I was on a flight last week and I was sitting next to a fellow who said to me that he's got a self-managed super fund and he's now got to start paying tax quarterly. He obviously used to pay it annually. And I said, well, you've obviously hit the threshold above which you've moved to quarterly instalments. And he said, yeah, but I'm only just a little bit over that threshold. I said, well, it's got to be set somewhere. And he said, but it's so arbitrary. And I said, so what? They said it $2,000 higher, so you're not caught now, but then you will be in a year or two. Mm, uh, it, it's mm. got to be set at some point. Mm, that's true. And he just happens to have met that threshold. Company tax rate reduction. Now, this is something that I have spoken to at length. I have had numerous discussions with Treasury and the ATO over the past few years, and I have run a number of conference sessions on this as well. Interesting to look at where we've actually landed with all this. So I don't propose to go back through the rules now, mm. other than mm. to say we've got the base rate entity rules. Yep. In my experience, we've got um, enormous complexity and anomalies. So we can end up with companies that you think would be eligible for the lower tax rate who may in fact not be. And mm. then equally, we've got companies that you would think don't get the lower tax rate. In fact, they do qualify. 
An easy example would be the corporate beneficiary. Now, most practitioners would say, well, if it does nothing but get a trust distribution, it's passive, so taxed at the higher rate. But if the income being distributed by the trust is business income, then it keeps that character and the company gets the lower tax rate. That is true. But equally, I've identified businesses that, due to the nature of their income, falls within the category of a royalty, potentially, and then we start moving into higher tax rates. So whether that was the intended outcome. We've got issues with trap franking credits. And it's still a question that comes up often. Why can't we just continue to frank at 30% until the credits are used up? Mm. Or some practitioners, even remembering the old Class A, Class B, mm. Class C franking accounts, yep. they want to convert them. Yep. Well, there's nothing to convert there's nothing anymore. nothing to convert, Because yep. they're already at the, the tax-paid basis. Yep. I just want to read out to our listeners. This is a an extract from the explanatory memorandum of the Enterprise Tax Plan Bill. This was the original tax cuts for the companies. It says a greater number of corporate tax entities will be entitled to the 27.5% corporate rate each year, reflecting the increase in the aggregated turnover to qualify as a base rate entity. Therefore, it is not feasible to continue to operate the imputation system at the headline corporate rate of 30% for all corporate tax entities. So this was quite intended that the government move away from a standard 30% rate franking for all companies. Mm-hmm. And of course, we've now got to go through the process of looking at prior year amounts to determine franking rates. Um, clearly, there are a lot of strategies and people need to give thought to how and when they're going to be paying out dividends. Um, just something for listeners to think about. Next one July, the franking rate goes to 26% for base rate entities. So if they're thinking of paying out a dividend, if they do it by June 30 next year, they'll secure the 27.5% rate. If they want to delay their top-up tax, fine, but they'll get a lower franking rate. And it goes to 25% 1 July 2025. So the longer they leave it, the more trap franking credits they're going to find. Yeah, Mm. agree. I also want to make this observation about the corporate tax cuts. Many small and private companies are owned by what we call the mum and dad shareholder, the resident shareholder. So if a company pays less tax, then it's got a lower franking rate. And that means there'll be more top-up tax payable by the shareholders. So at the end of the day, it's really just a holding pattern until the dividend comes out and goes to the, the shareholders at their marginal rates. In other words, does a lower company tax rate actually help anyone in the SME sector? Big end of town, who are in the international space, and part of the motivation for these measures, and the government said back in 2016 in the federal budget when this was announced, that a more competitive company tax rate will encourage investment, raise productivity, increase GDP, and over time raise real wages and living standards. The companies that are trying to attract the foreign investment are still on the higher tax rate because they're above 50 million turnover. So again, it's more just an observation. I don't necessarily need a a policy response from you, but I think we've landed in an interesting place that the ones that get the lower tax rate, it's really just until that is passed on in the form of higher top-up tax for resident shareholders. And yet the ones who play on the global stage who have the non-resident shareholders, they're still taxed at 30%. And is that what the government intended back in 2016 when they set out to reduce the rate by 5% for all companies? So, so look, mainly, look, my comment on that would be that it doesn't all, you don't always end up on the top marginal tax rate because I guess it depends at what which junctures you, you drip feed it out. And you so, could be retired by then, in which case you might get a refund of franking credits. <laughs> you may do. So, <laughs> so that's right. So, but, but there's certainly, yeah, there's certainly a lot to think about in that area. Mm. Small business CGT, we've touched on it a lot today, but 
things to think about. Um, the threshold, I get asked regularly, is it ever going to go up? Is it going to be stuck at $2 million? Are they going to increase six? Now, for those who don't know the history of this, it actually was $5 million and it increased, I'm going to say, 1 July 16, I think it in, sorry, 2006, I should say. Um, it increased up to, to $6 million. So we did get a $1 million increase um, a number of years ago. Is it too complex? I think we've touched on already that this is a complex set of provisions. Um, again, some feedback, Mark. I think a lot of practitioners are reaching the point a little bit like consolidations or R&D. Is it time to outsource it? Is it now become so specialised that the ability to reach a position and be confident that you're right and know that this is one of the most litigated areas, and I'm talking specifically about the six mil threshold, um, it's an interesting space for practitioners at the moment. So I think, Robin, some firms do outsource it. Some firms try and do it themselves. The problem is that practitioners need to understand what things they should be outsourcing and what things they should be doing, and they need to have that communication with their clients. And sometimes what I've found, speaking to different practitioners, is, is that not everyone has the confidence to say to their client, look, I'm not sure that I should be the one doing this. I think someone else needs to do this because it is complex. And this is a challenge for practitioners generally, knowing where your competency and your skills... Knowing where your boundaries are. Yeah. So, so it's not just about... I mean, your comment is, is very relevant, but it's not just about small business CGT. It's actually about a, a number of different facets of whether it's the tax law or other... Of course. ...or other business matters uh, where, you know, the accountant should be acting as, if you like, uh, a general practitioner in a way and making sure that they know when to outsource and what are the things that they should be contributing to. When so, to call on the consolidations expert, when to call on the R&D expert. That's right, that's right. So even mm. R&D, for example, uh, you know, there would be practitioners, I'm sure, trying to do that themselves, not thinking it's that difficult. But of course, if you've never done R&D before, then maybe you shouldn't be doing R&D. Um, Look, I've got to say on that one, I think there's been a shift. Mm. Um, in years gone by, perhaps, but there would rarely be a, a smaller firm these days that I speak with who's not outsourcing it. Mm. They've recognised it's become so specialised that the experts don't need to be brought in. Mm. Well, but, that's good. Well, that's good to know. Yes. Yep. Mark, what else did you find through the process of reviewing the concessions or undertaking the feedback with stakeholders? So, so, so we also found that um, they were very much wanting support in terms of education and you know further further learning about business and how to conduct a business. They wanted to understand more about the hiring of staff. Some small businesses were a bit um, hesitant to hire staff. They to understand their employer obligations? Yeah, they didn't want the legal obligation of, well, well, what if the staff member resigns and where does that leave me? And, of course, we've got the Fair Work Act, which kind of, of fulfils that, that function to, to a certain degree. Um, not everybody understood that, and those that did were... were cognizant of at which junctures they fall into the act and which junctures they don't. Um, and we also had a bit of a discussion around loss carryback rules. So it, funnily enough, the number of taxpayers were in favour of bringing the loss carryback rules back. Which, um, if people can't <laughs> so, remember what they were, this was a, um, um, gosh, how long were they around for a year? Maybe two at the most? I think only a year for memory, months. maybe two. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's basically an opportunity where if a company made a loss, at the moment, of course, you carry the loss forward to offset against future taxable income. Mm. This allowed you, if you met certain conditions, to take the loss back to apply against previous taxable income. That's right. That's quite common in a number of jurisdictions, including the US, Germany, um, where where you can carry back for one or two year periods. So we wouldn't be reinventing the wheel if that came in again? No, well, the legislation's all there ready to go, isn't it? So... <laughs> <laughs> 
about some of the challenges for small business. And I'm thinking of technological advances. Um, I was listening just yesterday to a discussion on the radio about how technology is changing so quickly and keeping up with it. Um, businesses are having to update their systems, their accounting software. STP has been a, a major change for business, the mm. single touch payroll reporting rules. If they had beautiful payroll and systems in place, you just flick a switch. But yep. if you didn't have that in place, it's been a big shift. Um, we've got cloud-based systems and, and storage and things are moving rapidly. So how does business keep up with all of that? The sharing economy, gig economy, is that potentially changing the way that businesses operate and the, and the old-fashioned models, are they still working effectively today? Mm, mm. Um, some would be aware that they're proposing at the moment to change the FBT rules. Now, there's a piece of legislation which um, probably does need a bit of a facelift, but they're looking at updating the definition of taxi because ever since we've had the federal court decision on Uber, which confirmed for GST purposes that a, a, a ride-sharing vehicle or an Uber is a taxi for GST purposes, the ATA recently announced its position that it's not considered to be a taxi for FBT purposes. And so we've had a sort of a mismatch between these two mm. bits of legislation, and that's now being fixed up, and that's pleasing to see. But I think ongoing there are going to be more challenges where the tax laws trying to keep pace with what the economy is doing and, and what technological advancements are doing. Yeah, so look, I think technology is challenging all businesses, including accounting firms and legal firms. And all of us uh, personally pro too. Professional service firms. So, mm. you know, um, so I think um, that's just going to be an ongoing uh, battle. And, you know, what is it that the tax provisions can do to, to perhaps help facilitate that you know, is, a, is a question. I notice separately Treasury is currently consulting on the coin offerings. So there are some businesses that instead of going to the traditional ASIC model and raising share capital through a prospectus, they're going to initial coin offerings oh. and they're raising capital that way. And so the review is looking at how does that work and does the regulatory system adequately cover it and mm. should there be changes to the tax law to deal with those? So it's interesting these more contemporary reviews yep. are being undertaken. Any final comments, Mark? Well, Robin, I think I think the small business review has been a you know a worthwhile uh, thing to do. Um, you know, I think it's important to regularly review the current mix of concessions that you have, whether they still remain appropriate or not. As you've just mentioned, business systems and processes change all the time. You know, with the digitalisation, it's another issue as well. So it's always important to look at the concessions on offer. Are they working? Do they continue to work? Do they need to be adjusted? And that, I think that's just an ongoing process and it's also important as part of all that to, to look at what's happening internationally and seeing how they're dealing with these issues and the, are there things that we can learn and I'd like to think that um, I'd like to think that there's a few things that the international or that the global world can, can learn from what we're doing in Australia as well. Well, I really look forward to seeing the final report when it is released and the recommendations and typically we have seen legislative amendment coming out of these reviews so it will be interesting to see uh, what policy looks like uh, post the release of this particular review. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming in. Okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of Taxiac. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are because it will help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time.